Here we go. Yay, we did it. We're so genius. <laughs> it's working. Yeah, this is our first podcast being recorded right now. Beat the dealer, humans and the environment. This is us fighting with technology. It's a very good first start. Fighting with technology. We're fighting with humans. We're at war. We are <laughs> the generals, the oligarchs of this war. Uh, nobody else seems to care, but we do. We do. We actually do. Yeah. So... <laughs> I've been thinking about that a little bit. It's like, why have a podcast, you know? Uh, who's going to listen to us? And what is our target audience, right? Because the more that I listen to podcasts, I'm like, you know, I get insecure. And I'm like, these people are smarter than me. And and they're, they have so much to say. And they're so well-researched. But but what do you think about that? How Socrates it? put it best. He was like, I'm an idiot who knows nothing. And George Soros, the great hedge fund billionaire, also took these principles to heart. He was like, I am an idiot who knows nothing. And uh, I think that's a great way of approaching it. Many of the other podcasters probably think they know too much. And uh, as a result, they'll fail. But not here. No, I love that. And I was thinking even what my ideal target audience is. And maybe before I tell you um, what mine is, what is your ideal target audience of who do you think our listeners would be or who do we market this to, you know? Pretty much anybody that cares about the future of humanity and civilization <laughs> proper. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe we should um, what topics we actually want to explore as well. But um, but I love that what you said because like my ideal target audience is sort of this like modern day human with an open mind you know people that want to be better expand their mind kind of feel less alone in this crazy world right for having exactly. these questions and not always having all the right answers but having I guess other voices out there that kind of want to explore and go in these rabbit holes and figure out not just solutions, but actually what is the problems that we're facing, you know? Exactly. There's currently a war going on between, like, pretty much everybody. Um, the news is pretty much narrative warfare for some economic agents. Um, pretty much everything everybody hears on the news was kind of placed there by somebody for a reason. Um you can kind of think of it as propaganda in a way. Um, I'm pretty sure most people are aware that like CNN versus like Fox News, um, there's definitely a difference in what's going on there. And neither one is quite doing it like correctly. Neither one is like a good source of high signal, low noise information. And the problem, too, is that even scientific journal articles aren't immune from this problem. Uh, you need to go into who did the research, what the preponderance of the data was, what was the methodology, who funded it. So it's very difficult and increasingly difficult now to figure out where to find that good, high-signal, low-noise information out there in the world. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's very interesting, too, because um, you're in the States, which everybody knows what's going on with your political systems and all this craziness, but I'm in Canada. So I, I think my news censorship or whatever access via is different than yours, right? So I'm very interested to see your take on that outlook from where you are and for where, where I am, right? Exactly. From what, from what I understand, um, there's an upcoming election and no matter which candidate wins, half the country will think that it was stolen from them. Uh, no matter which side wins, which can probably lead to like civil unrest, um, 50% of the population being angry. But honestly, uh, political and financial news makes absolutely no sense to me. I totally stay away from like all forms of news, including newspapers. Um, I think Nassim Taleb was the one that proposed this experiment. He was like, read the newspaper religiously every single day, um, except read the edition from a month prior. And uh, I did that for a couple of days and figured out that it was like all nonsense. Um, so, yeah, I stay completely away from that as a source of information. Yeah, it's kind of mind numbing, too, because it's almost in a way, is it brainwashing you to think, you know, towards some kind of bias as well. Right. And 
you know, it's so easy to be conditioned by what their message is, even if we don't, even if we're conscious of it, I think based on natural human nature, we can't help but just be steered in a direction. How do you remain kind of neutral? I'm very mindful of that, where it's like, when I digest something, do we, how do we look at it holistically to say, um, what might be true here, uh, the exact opposite could also be true. And uh, when we look at that, just kind of break that your own thoughts and your own beliefs over and over, I think it's probably a good approach when we look at the world these days, right? Exactly. And the problem is like no one human being can make sense of it all. Um, We need collective sense making in order to really try to make sense of the world. And like, the problem is if I'm like doing my own sense making and I'm trying to find other people that are doing sense making well i have to figure out uh, what are their biases what are their mistakes in their own sense making process etc so it's very difficult to try to sense make and kind of make sense of it all really even if you're one person even if you're a group of people it gets difficult Mm -hmm. i find that too like i you know i used to kind of pride myself on having common sense but throughout this whole pandemic and what's happening with the world I'm like, maybe I just didn't. And I was just stuck on some narrative, you know, where I'm, I know my way, but that I thought I was an empathetic, compassionate person until this whole, every single month, like black lives movement and this, and, you know, privilege and learning about these terms that are not, we don't have so much time to digest it. But now that I do, I'm like, wow, I didn't really know it as much as I should have. And the more that I learn, the more that I'm able to just be more quiet and listen. And that was a, a very big lesson for me is like digesting more and think about how I add to that or and not speak first, uh, you know, not wait to speak, but like listen first and really understand. Yeah, precisely. I think like a lot of it is listening more than kind of speaking. I try to like make sense of the world by trying to listen to what people say um doing a lot of reading of like old foundational books rather than new stuff um there's sort of a survivorship bias that goes on with like uh kind of forms of media like books and textbooks and stuff that stick around for a long time the Mm -hmm. ones that survive are typically like the best like hats from seven years ago um i find more charming than what's out there now um that's part of like the survivorship bias i suppose um it's also like new is not always better um it's sort of that old school kind of classic charm and stuff Mm -hmm. and something that's a little bit more timeless you know has stand has stood the test of time right so yeah i mean what kind of books are you reading right now like what can you um make an example i like beat the dealer by ed thorpe a blackjack book Um, yeah the art of war by sun Tzu is always a classic i love nasim nicholas taleb's work um he is a five book series called the inserto Mm -hmm. um he also has a bunch of like technical books about trading and um sort of the problem with over standardized statistics um as well as, uh, oh, another good one, Spitznagel, Mark Spitznagel of Universa Investments. He wrote a book called The Dow of Capital. I thought that was really illuminating. Mm-hmm. So you have, sounds like you have a really big range of what you read. And isn't it very funny when we take in wisdom from these different sources and we actually take a lesson into another domain, you know? So reading something like Beat the Dealer, Mm-hmm. has a lot to do with like this game strategy but you it, you know the book is really centered around the game of blackjack how to beat that but you can actually take that parallel off the blackjack table and kind of apply it to like economics or mm-hmm. you know your whatever you do for work or your, even your daily life right yeah ed thorpe did that he took his lessons from blackjack then applied it to the roulette table then applied it to wall street and became one of the best to ever do it. He actually discovered the mathematical equivalent to the Black Skulls uh, formula for, for pricing options um, about four years before Black Skulls and Merton did, but he didn't get a Nobel Prize for it. 
because he was uh, he didn't want his equation publicized because he was just making so much money from it. That's a fun <laughs> fact that most people have no idea about. That's awesome. What 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 was that strategy? Do you know it? It was um it? he was um sort of like um using advanced quantitative methods in order to kind of get an edge in the market. And um yeah, he basically came across what we now uh, in the business refer to as the Black Skulls Merton equation. Um and it's just an incredibly powerful way of pricing these options. And an option is just a um sort of a product that's bought and sold and financed that relies on um, another asset called the underlying asset. So if you wanted to, if you thought Apple was going to go up, you would buy a call option. If you thought it was going to go down at a certain day, you would buy a put option. And um, it gets like more advanced and tricky than that. There are the Greeks, um, stuff like that. And um, there's also the American versus the European option. Um, I actually once right. explained this to like an eight-year-old and he figured it out. Um, an American option is when you want to marry somebody you love and you can execute on that at any time. And a European option, um, things are odd in Europe, I told him. <laughs> yeah, uh, my extent of, I mean, I'm in the stock market, um, but my extent extent goes to you know uh buy low sell high and just hold it until uh i don't lose my money exactly i don't know i think the best it seems like a simple strategy (laughs) that's a great strategy i think one of the best sort of tips out there for people just getting into that sort of thing is um before you enter a trade you should already have your exit kind of figured out because once you're inside of the trade and you're kind of holding on to these stocks, shares of stock, um, that's when emotions enter the picture. If you already know when you're going to exit, um, you already know like what price it goes below and that's your time to exit, that sort of thing. Uh, there's no need to have any stress at all. You kind of already have your strategy mapped out beforehand. Yeah, I love that mindset. It's very similar to like a gambler's mentality too, right? Like, if you're actually going into a casino, you should be like, okay, I'm going to go here for entertainment. I'm going to lose this amount. Mm. And then if I go there and I win this amount, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to hold my gains and I'm going to leave. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, or it's so, like, yeah, I'm going to do mean, some strategic planning and try not to get dragged out of this casino by the blackjack uh, <laughs> operators, that kind of thing. And maybe I'll just wander over to the poker table a little bit and play a little uh, game there. <laughs> Yeah, just, you know, I'm just saying minimizing your losses, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and another thing, um, what I, you know, let's think about the title a little bit of our podcast, like about Beat the Dealer and how um, I love that parallel between some kind of how a casino house is a perfect analogy for what's sort of happening in our real world as well. Like at the poker table, like a lot of these little I guess little ecosystems that we can actually parallel to what's happening in the real world. And it really is the underlying thing about play, right? Mm. It, life is sort of this thing where um, it kind of flows like, like a game. Yeah, exactly. I think it's all game theory. Um, this mm-hmm. is like the study of ways in which economic agents sort of make decisions, sometimes rational, sometimes irrational. And um, there are these other terms that get tossed around with advanced kind of mathematical decisions like preferences, utilities, that kind of thing. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the crazy part about it is sometimes the outcome is uh, something intended by none of the agents. Um, And sometimes it's like suboptimal for all of the players. Um, They could have had a better option if they just kind of worked together a little bit rather than trying to compete. And the problem with the world now is um, because we value things relative to their scarcity, we kind of optimize for scarcity. And in this way, like gold, precious metals, et cetera, are valued more than things like clean air or uh, preserving the environment. And valuing things in this way is what actually leads to the um, sort of win-lose gaming sort of scenario that we find ourselves in. Well, life, yeah, I understand what you're saying there. Um, you know, and when we go into 
like a poker game or whatever, it feels very much because it's a competition, it's very zero sum. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it's in the real world, it's hard to, I guess, collaborate when we have this capitalistic system that's put in place where it's like, you're raced to the top. It always feels like, you know, you're always trying to keep up with the Joneses or someone you're always comparing yourself to like, Oh, this is what I have. This is what you have. As opposed to like, I don't know, back in the day where we're more community centric and yeah, we're all ancient civilizations did it really well, I would say. And um, also like, I think Taleb said this as well. The best way to become rich is just to simply like surround yourself with poor people and the best way to become poor is just oh. to surround yourself with people that are richer than you. Yeah. No, um, I mean, I definitely see a better, more responsible future for, like, economics, for sure. And I, I hope I can see it in my lifetime. Um, definitely put yeah. my life's work towards kind of helping to pave that new future because we see what's kind of happening when we kind of abuse these things like you said that we don't actually put this invisible v value that we don't see on it like then like how much the 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 environment kind of gives us that is for free right where we feel like we are entitled to free water and clean air and then we kind of take these resources and then we don't give it back and it's such a degenerative type of mindset that can't be sustained forever yeah right exactly and, it's sort of like and, um jared diamond and his like great piece about hunter gatherers like he he said it was the worst mistake in all of humankind to move from that hunter gatherer life to um civilization itself i read some books um like the world in five glasses where they actually argue that um, a smart argument that the only reason why humans like became civilized was because of alcohol. Um, they started like realizing <laughs> that um, kind of like fruit that was um, sitting around um, would give them like a buzz or something like that. And then in order to make it all happen, um, certain steps had to take place and they became uh, groups of people domesticating animals and civilization emerged. <laughs> Mm hmm. Well, speaking of domestication, same thing in that book, Sapiens, right? But you all know Harari. Um, I know that when he was saying about domesticating fire and us being able to domesticate animals and making convenience, we ended up domesticating ourselves, you know, and when we kind of do that, um, we kind of kill off this biodiversity by making things a little bit more easy. So what is that trade off there? all the time that yeah you know, exactly we're looking at yeah that that that's when we break a part of this closed loop system that nature has so perfectly designed for us by like kind of injecting this new technology of one part of the the system and thinking that it's not going to affect something else you know over time which you saw in this past century um since we've grown from like i guess since the late 1800s We've grown from having a billion humans on Earth to almost eight billion people now today, right? This little yeah. fraction of humanity has just, we don't even know how to manage things on such a big scale, right? So right now, we can do these things in little small pods, hoping that it scales well. But when we kind of take it to as a larger scale, it just blows up and Look at what's happening with the climate crisis. Look what's happening with politics and whatever, because we're trying to control these masses of people. But now things are getting out of hand. Like you can see, even with religion, how it used to have such a firm grasp. But then even the Catholic Church. I mean, look at all that craziness going on there too, right? But, yeah, it's craziness. I mean, I didn't read that book personally, but I definitely know like there are a bunch of arguments that can be made and kind of debated about like what's going on in the world um, in terms of like the increasing population. But one thing is certain, like the cost of um, kind of like um, destroying a bunch of people, the cost of sort of blowing the entire world up with one button is becoming lower and lower as time goes on. And uh, just the number of existential threats that we have is increasing dramatically. And most people aren't even aware. And a lot of people aren't even doing research into how are we going to stop this? Um, 
I think the world itself would have a totally different mindset if we put like a deadline on it. Like, um, uh, we only have 600 years left uh, to live on this planet. Like, we need to do something magnificent and glorious in the time that we have left. And of course, with that mm-hmm. sort of rise of the problem, like, um, as every like 100 years goes on, do we just keep that 600 year deadline? And that's sort of a problem in of itself. But yeah. yeah, there are different ways of dissecting and approaching the problem, but there certainly is a problem. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting time in humanity right now. And I almost feel like it's critical. I don't know if this is a very egocentric view to be like, oh, this part of humanity that we're living in right now is like, you know, dystopian, the cusp of that, right? Mm. But it definitely feels like right now, going full circle to how you we began this talk um, about war, right? And, yeah. you know, ever since this human technological innovations of like the nuclear bomb and everything there, what is this World War Three right now? Is it this coronavirus and pandemics or these invisible things that no one's actually aware of that is happening behind the scenes that, you know, we're so distracted by what they're feeding us on media and what we're what we're digesting every day that we don't actually see the bigger game that's sort of happening behind the scenes. And I, I don't know what it is about me, but I feel it. I don't know if you can feel it in your gut and everybody, maybe it's very hard to put into words. And um, I'm sure if I'm feeling like that, there's a lot of people in the world is probably feeling like they're like, there's something wrong. I don't know what's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. You know, do you feel that way as well from where you are? I could definitely tell that, like, uh, there's a lot of civil unrest going on. Um, people are more anxious and their animosity is growing. Um, from an economic perspective, I would say that um, I see sort of a global recession looming on the horizon. And the problem with that this time, I would say, is um, part of the reason we had World War Two was because of the lasting anxieties and animosities from the Great Depression that we simply worldwide couldn't construct a way out of. And um, basically the solution to that was drafting every all the unemployed people and uh, putting them to war. And this is perhaps why we saw um, massive controversial bailouts in 2008. Um, so this time, I'm not quite sure how we worldwide will try to construct a way out of this. But with all the uh, sort of civil unrest we see, um, I suppose war is definitely not off the table of possibilities. And if it's, if it does sort of escalate to that, um, we now have more destructive weapons than we ever had in the entirety of human civilization. Um, well, do you think um, that it would ever get to that point where we're destroying ourselves like how World War II was? Do you think we're using these weapons like, you know, or do you think that it was more of a, I won't want to say gentler, <laughs> more, uh, I guess, I won't even want to use that word softer, but, you know, when we, it's more of like an economic warfare where it's about money flows and breaking down a society like getting their civilians to fight each other in their civil war kind of what's happening in in the states you know maybe i don't want to i mean this is all hearsay but i'm just questioning it right now but like you know how russia has kind of had this longer game and china had this longer game about influencing the media what people are digesting so they're you know bombing twitter with all this fake news and kind of like almost conditioning these mindsets for years now and and kind of skewing the political elections or whatever that is to almost kind of go at it from a psychological point as opposed to like something that's tangible and material physically like destroying something you know what i mean exactly It's kind of like um, there's always been war going on geopolitically. Um, No, but I'm just, the question would be, do you think that it would ever go backwards to a place where we're actually just killing each other in in this, like... Certainly, I would say so, in my opinion. Um, I would say, like, nowadays, especially after the um, coronavirus pandemic, it's even more likely in my mind. 
Um, and a lot of people aren't looking at the big picture in terms of like that sort of thing. And they're also not looking at the big picture and sort of our place and time in the universe, um, where we stand. Um, humans themselves have only been around on this planet for an extremely short period of time compared to sort of the history of the Earth. And the Earth has been around for just a very small amount of time compared to all these other planets. Um, I did read a recent yeah. paper about the discovery of a gigantic luminous blue star that was observed a decade ago and has now disappeared from its galaxy, leaving behind no evidence of either a supernova or a collapsar. It just vanished suddenly without a trace. And I was thinking, like, maybe it was a Dyson sphere. Um, maybe there's, like, an advanced civilization out there in that galaxy. What's a Dyson sphere? Oh, it's sort of a device um, meant to encapsulate a star in order to um, absolutely kind of take all the energy from it uh, for some advanced civilization to use. Um, perhaps that's the reason why maybe it was like a mistake maybe there's some unknown variable that I'm leaving out but I thought that was super interesting I definitely I'm sure that's not on the news (laughs) (laughs) so um, just out of curiosity why do you think nature evolved humanity the way it did like what's your take on like consciousness and what do we like what do we add to this whole animal kingdom of balance and equilibrium it's kind of hard to say i think um i definitely think there are lessons from sort of um darwin about um sort of evolution natural selection that are definitely at play in terms of the rise of human civilization humanity itself as a species um i also Mm -hmm. think that there are things going on um sort of like meta-Darwinism, maybe. I'm not sure if there's a technical scientific term that I'm missing out on. Um, But um, sort of like uh, the reason why the Pope um, isn't um, like a reproducing human, perhaps that's a sort of Darwinian um, construction to that. Perhaps... um, Explain that. I don't understand what you were trying to say there about the Pope not being a... Oh, That's... yeah, it's like the Pope uh, doesn't marry anybody. He doesn't have kids. Um, maybe there's a reason for that. And it goes back to sort of um, uh, Darwin. I would say that maybe um, some humans in the system are meant to do that in order to be sort of like the uh, chieftain, um, sort of the leader of a group um, in order to uh, sort of have that authority to kind of sort tell... of have a different purpose or role to play for this all of us as a species yeah exactly Um, and also religion itself may actually have a great purpose in sort of um human civilization in that it kind of teaches people these values um sort of family values maybe um sort of values about thinking about empathy beyond um uh just their immediate circle of people thinking about all other humans um Buddhism does that yeah. extremely well. It's more of a practice than a religion. Um, mm, that's a very interesting thought. Um, I read something about that, even about um, homosexuals and different sexual orientations, just to have mm-hmm. that level of bio like diversity amongst even our species, right, as a humans, um, because it goes so many layers deep as well. Where diversity, even amongst our gen- you know genes, and DNA, and those combinations, you know, make us, I guess survive over the long term and um, I want to make a point here though um, there's this another thought leader um, his name's I don't know if you heard of him Charles Eisenstein and mm, have you heard of him before? no yeah so he speaks about everything kind of like this new and ancient story is what his podcast is and I and he he talks a lot about this human this evolution where we kind of fit and in, about initiation about um, us being sort of this, this uh, like a keystone species, species right? So uh, if you don't know what a keystone species is, it's these animals that um, part of the kingdom where they, they're so fundamental to it that if you kind of remove them, it kind of breaks that whole chain of everybody else that gets so affected, kind of, for example, like a wolf, right? If you mm-hmm. kind of remove that, the caribou gets unbalanced and then without the caribou, other little small critters and animals get imbalanced and all this kind of stuff. 
but what he was saying about humans um maybe you know climate the climate crisis might be our initiation of not being a degenerative species species and if we could actually solve this with our brain and kind of come together to kind of help better the entire all living things this might be um that time now or else if we don't kind of figure this out and come together we might just be wiped off right and then because if we were to kind of leave the planet the rest of nature kind of thrives right yeah because if you look at the shutdown of what's happening us just uh, with the coronavirus, maybe that's just nature kind of telling us, you know, you guys are a little bit too far. We have to kind of step in and balance this right now. And mm-hmm. that's sort of this intelligence of like viruses and mushrooms and all this kind of stuff kind of talking to each other. And then for us, we're like, okay, um, we need to either wake up and to a new normal and kind of look at what the future holds there and take this as like an eye opener and a lesson and not go back to this old normal where we're just like completely depleting resources for our own benefit and gain. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be, it's a very interesting thought that he put out there for that. But um, again, I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know if anybody has an answer of why humans have these, the, why we've evolved the way we have. Mm-hmm. Um but... I would say, like, I uh, if I had to, like, make a bet on whether humans, like, the biological organism has free will or um, sort of um, has, like, um, if it's free will or if it's just straight um, determinism, I would definitely say it's all determinism. Um, I would say there's no free will. Um, Why do you say that? Uh, I, I like Definitely coming from like a sort of machine learning background. Um, I did my time in Silicon Valley, I suppose. And um, just how the artificial intelligence that we're building works um, and how it's so closely modeled to the human brain and how it's almost the same thing. Um, I sort of see the human brain as sort of like a beautiful bird. Um, And I see uh, sort of like the AI that we're building um, uh, decision-making AI, that sort of thing, is sort of like a jet <laughs> roaring through the sky. Um, in that way, I sort of like don't see um, I don't see room for um, free will. Mm, but I mean, that's just to really assume that you can actually replicate something with technology, like or a cyborg or whatever AI, to to mimic the. Um, a human perfectly right like to have this perfect technological twin mm-hmm. um but i i don't know i feel like there is this there there's so much unknowns to our consciousness and the human body and and that a machine can't learn because i i really think maybe it's on a spiritual level but we're so complex you know i i think the things that we can kind of rep, um kind of model like our brain pathways and the way we think and maybe our behaviors and conditioning but but what about something like intuition that's where the kind of free will kind of comes in right it's sort mm. of like oh well at any moment i could change my mind and yeah this is not usual to my behavior but i could learn mm-hmm. and i know that because i did this so many times I know the outcome and eventually that outcome, either there's so much suffering or there's these results that you don't want that you kind of just stop and say, no, I've had enough. And that's when kind of like growth happens. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just don't see a machine being able to do that. Do, do you? I mean, um, I sort of see like um, sort of there's that um, machine that's able to beat humans in the game of chess so easily um certain um algorithms can just blow by human beings in amazing ways and um in that way i sort of see how um sort of like taking the limit case of this how um it'll be so easy for our artificial intelligence to overtake sort of uh the human intelligence i foresee um sort of the percentage of intelligence on earth um 
being more and more sort of um, computer based as opposed to sort of biological based in the coming decades, centuries, mm-hmm. etc. But then, right. But then how do you define something like intelligence, though? Right. If you define t- intelligence as if it's like experience or wisdom or book smarts. Mm-hmm. But again, going back to the, I don't know whose quote this is, but you can't really judge a fish by how well it climbs a tree. Mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, you know, what did I read about um, from Zach Bush the other day about our genes, um, you know, somewhere where humans kind of fall between, I think we have about 20,000 different genes and we fall between a fruit fly and a flea. Mm-hmm. And then we scale up there. If we have 20,000 and we know how complex we are, and uh, we go to bacteria and I think, I believe there's something like 2 billion genes. Mm-hmm. And then you scale even up to something like mushrooms and fungi, and then you have like 125 trillion genes. And, you know, thinking about that, we're, like you were saying about how humans are so young and so new in this whole scope of like just life on earth, that this bacteria and mushrooms have been around for so long that they've evolved into like, you know, being able to be so smart to survive that even when we're gone, they will still exist, right? Yeah. Um, they've touched everything, all the water. Like, there's even the thing about water having this memory. Like, every water, the water that we drink and anything has already been through, I think, a minimum of three different life forms before it even entered you, right? Like, other humans, yeah. you know? And it's very, if you think about that cycle of, what does it carry into your body and does it come with, you know, um, memory and DNA and trauma and um, love and whatever? <laughs> yeah. The These are difficult questions to answer. It's like, what is intelligence? What is consciousness? Um, what is life itself too? I read a recent paper where they found 24 exoplanets more conducive to existence of life rather than earth itself. So it's like um, there are definitely possibilities of life out there uh, beyond just the Earth. Um, and also like. Um, uh, what, kind of, what kind of intelligence? You mean like aliens? We're going to go there? Oh, yeah, it could be um, could be advanced forms of life. Um, it could be just cellular sort of life. Um, it's uh, even artificial intelligence itself is interesting. Um, I would say living things um, made of what we call atoms um, are created by the bonding of both like OD defects and 1D defects in space time, if you want to get super technical. And they might actually flourish inside the cores of stars. Um, there's a lot going on in sort of research like that. Um, uh, the cores of stars, um, other planets. Um, I read a paper too where scientists, world class scientists, suggested that COVID nineteen is a virus from outer space. Um, <laughs> it was a very interesting long paper. Um, I think it uh, what was it called Origin of New Emergent Coronavirus and uh, something fungal diseases, terrestrial or cosmic. And um, they make a solid argument for it being um, sort of cosmic. Um, I mean, I suppose a lot of things on Earth um, had to originate from somewhere on outer space. Asteroids um, millions and millions of years ago struck the planet. Um, we really don't know what's, what was on those things. And But going back to AI, it's sort of the field devoted to building artificial animals or at least artificial creatures that in suitable contexts appear to be animals and for many like artificial persons um these kind of goals immediately ensure that ai is a discipline of considerable interest to many philosophers and uh basically like on the constructive side many of the core formalisms and techniques used in ai come out of and are indeed uh, still much used and refined in philosophy like first order logic and its extensions, um, intentional logic suitable for the modeling of um, what's called doxastic attitudes and dionic reasoning, inductive logic, probability theory, probabilistic reasoning, practical reasoning and planning and so on. 
So like AI and philosophy itself is sort of really inter- interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, those are really big words. I mean, I understood like a little piece <laughs> of that. But I think what's kind of cool about what's happening with the future of AI, though, is how it kind of does this biomimicking and meaning mm-hmm. that's even a new term that I recently learned was sort of like taking all these really cool things in nature that animals can do that we can't and how do we mimic those little things to better our this human life experience that we have right mm-hmm. so um you know looking at birds at flight and how we kind of like made an airplane with wings and about like you know wind and whatever yeah <laughs> those that kind of terms but you know, it'd be very, I mean, I don't know if when we look at something like how fast technology is advancing, it'd be very, very cool to see AI kind of merge with, get connected again, right, to the nature and kind of become less of a separate domains, but kind of find this bridge between the two. And when we're able to be less fragmented and separate and human innovation can kind of be more about collaboration and joining together I think that is when we kind of start solving these real fundamental issues that Mm -hmm. that you know I mean I still I really hope um I don't know if there's any Star Trek fans out there and (laughs) if you're a big Star Trek Mm -hmm. or not but like you know I'm in, in talking about the Borg right and how it's sort of like they're they're all joined in this intelligence through their mind and they're connected um and it's it's very cool to see cybernetics sort of utilizing technology to create a, a regenerative species, but also have this like invulnerable part where you're machine, right? And I and and I love that concept of humans being able to evolve where we can actually shut down p- parts of ourselves, but also still have this beautiful part of being kind of you know mortal in a way yeah you know exactly. like in the great expanse of time all of us are already dead um kind of, <laughs> sure yeah, yeah it's crazy yeah. to think about but um i think a lot of people just don't um even consider um the possibility of their own deaths until like much later on in their lives i suppose and kind of tackling it early is rather um um liberating um useful i would say yeah and it's a very cultural thing like you know i'm grew up chinese but i was born in 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 canada here so north america and i was able to see these two cultures like the western and the east philosophies from a very young age Mm. like even though i was born here uh, my parents are so like was so fresh off the boat that (laughs) i was actually in esl till grade four like that's how I'm serious like and I was born here so I don't even know how I survived um the first you know 10 years of my life but I mean you hearing me speak you know English it's clearly I'm pretty fluent um but there is definitely an interesting thing when you know another language and that becomes like your it it actually says so much about a culture so speaking about like death even the way my parents, you know, or family, it, the way we do ceremonies in these rituals about like, you know, paying all this respect to ancestors, it, it's, it's these rituals that are baked into the, our core, like everyday life. It's not something that we do and visit on a vacation or uh, like a holiday, right? It's like every day we give thanks and it's this gratitude. And, um, but that whole thing about death, what happened, I guess is what I'm saying about the Western culture is that we fear it. So we're always trying to prolong it. And even the way we do something like how we're buried in the ground, we're so removed from the natural cycles mm-hmm. of life. Like we're, we're put into these caskets that cost, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, some of them. Yeah. And it, just so you can preserve your body. But really what you're supposed to do is, you know, your body, you, you've used it and, and in a way you have to kind of give it back because we're just carbon and, and you know, exactly. all these I want to say elements. it's uh, Tibetan Buddhism, maybe it's Mahayana Buddhism, but one of them, they yeah. do this amazing sort of ritual where um, the body is sort of returned to earth, um, this thing called the sky burial. 
Um, they basically sort of take the dead body and feed it to the birds, basically. Um, and in that way, it kind of goes back to the earth. Um, <laughs> and it's crazy <laughs> to think about, too, like um, uh, coming from my theoretical physics background, um, there can be like alternate realities that precede the existence of our own. Um, in one paper, they discover hawking points um, in the microwave background, backdrop of the sky. And all that provides evidence for the idea that our cosmos has resulted from the evaporation of black holes in a series of alternate realities that precede the existence of our own. So we're sort of this kind of like speck in the middle of um, this kind of grand system that's um, ever evolving, perhaps, and uh, has always been here, has always sort of born and died again. Um, it's sort of crazy to think about that sort of big picture to everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that mentality, though, of like being able to be, you know, grounded with our f- feet on the ground, you know, living the day to day routines, but also be able to shift your mind to say, you know what, on the bigger scale, we are really a dot within a dot and within a dot. Exactly. <laughs> it, it shows you if you're able to shift there, you know, you don't focus on don't sweat the small things. Right. So, I mean, my brother has always taught me that and is always in the back of my head where. It's like, if you're in, if you have your head and you're in your office, so you zoom out, and you, right? You're looking at your house and then you zoom out from there and you're like, okay, well, it's a country view. And you zoom out from there and you're like the continent and then zoom out. It's like the world and you keep zooming out and you're like, okay, well, we're in this galaxy now, the Milky Way. And you're like, okay, maybe you might, and you just keep going from there. Right. But, but then you're like, you know, maybe my issue <laughs> is about like, you know, they put, I don't know, um, like some issue. I don't even, I can't even think of, I didn't have any problems yet today that I was pondering, but you know, it just makes your little things so trivial that you're like, why am I even stressing about this? You know? And exactly. Yeah. A lot of people worry about things that are just kind of meaningless. Um, in the grand I, scheme I mean, of things, I just um, want to add to a point where I don't, I don't want to minimize my... people's issues, oh, yeah. and this could be the fact that we're just privileged to say, okay, we don't have issues where we're paying bills, have trouble paying bills, and getting food on the table. And so, even us having this discussion right now, um, it makes me sometimes feel a little bit removed from the issues and problems of everyday life that other people face. So, I just want to say, like, it's it's, it's with extreme mm-hmm. gratitude that. Um, we're able to have and share these thoughts that maybe some people don't have the time to go to these rabbit holes and think about, you know? Yeah. yeah Sorry. I cut you exactly. off. It's hard to, yeah, hard to kind of conceptualize too, but um, yeah, I definitely didn't come from like uh, rich beginnings or anything. Um, I was certainly at a point in my life once when I had really? like, getting food, going to bed, like hungry and stuff like that. Oh, well, definitely. that's hard to yeah. think that when um, and, um, I just assumed that your family was well off. Being a Bilzerian and everything. <laughs> definitely. I suppose I know. Like, the Bilzerian so, last name. Well, um, well, same thing with me. Like I definitely grew up on a different side of the tracks. And I think that makes for a, a more well-rounded person because that's something I'm very, very mindful of being able to like connect to just not forget those roots because I think um, I love this quote. I don't know. Who, I, I don't know who the quote, uh, the people that quote these things are, but I remember the quotes, uh, but it's like, uh, in order to be revolutionary, you have to be accessible to the poor. And that always stuck with me because Mm. you know for me I really feel like whatever I'm doing with my life has to have value to do something greater for humanity on some big scale because I saw what the range was from you know growing up you know with my mom on government assistance all the way to the point when I got married and I was living in a five-star hotel in Dubai right so I was able to like and now coming back full circle to find myself in the middle at this point to be like, okay, well, I've lived such experiences. How do I now serve? And where is my place? And where is that medicine that I give back now? Right. And I, I, I think that's, um, anyways, that's more of a personal thing that I'm saying, but definitely this, this podcast is like one of those 
first steps that I want to say, well, where do I find that voice and who, who do I talk to that kind of understands like how to shape that as well? Like kind of help light that path a little bit. Precisely. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, yeah, I suppose like my humble beginnings and sort of that route I took through life. That's part of the reason why I became obsessed with sort of money management and trading things, um, trying to uh, get a better deal, I suppose. Um, and uh, yeah, come uh, coming from that, I mean, you can kind of discuss economic problems in the world, in countries and states between people, that kind of thing. But an interesting paper from Paul Krugman, um, one of the Nobel laureates, uh, comes to mind. Um, although I kind of disagree with him nowadays about virtually everything. Um, he was discussing in this paper the economic problems that might arise during trade between exo-civilizations able to travel at the speed of light among stars. And like thinking about problems like that um, sort of kind of uh, gives like an even bigger perspective to the uh, sort of perspectives that we already have on like mm-hmm. our trade on the earth. I mean, when we focus on issues like that, like, you know, when people have too much money, we look at people like I'm just gonna throw them out there, like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or that dude from Virgin. What's his name? Um, uh, Richard Branson. Oh, um, but where uh, do you go uh, from there, right? Yeah, like they're exactly. always focusing on not healing the earth, or maybe they are. Um, so maybe I'm just oblivious to what there is. But the news always highlights, you know, they're sending Teslas to space, and they're, to, you know, mm-hmm. there are all these aspirations of like, you know, setting mm-hmm. up colonies there. But what about the planet that we have right now? Like, you're just going to, like, so take all this capital that you've earned here, and now you don't want to, like, serve humanity here? You know, where are you going with that? Like, why are you, you know, like, mm-hmm. there comes to be a point where it's sort of this collective conne- connection back. And I just, when I look at people, like, mm-hmm. I just seem so, I don't, I hate using the word narcissistic, but it's sort of, like, so self-serving. And, and you, you've already... I mean, I love some of the circles I talk to or whatever. It's like, like capitalism should have like some kind of limit there where it's like, if you're past, you know, 99 million, you get a trophy and say, you know what? You win capitalism. Everything beyond that needs to kind of give back to society now. Right. And then not, you know, I mean, for the fact that Jeff Bezos, I don't know if he's past $2 trillion, but. I read some kind of statistic and this was like a, about six months ago that I read this, that since if we go back to the beginning of time when humanity actually started, if he were to spend $180,000 an hour, he wouldn't be able to spend all the money that he has. That is how much he has. $180,000 an hour. <laughs> I would say part of the reason to accumulate that much wealth um, I would say it's pretty easy to make um, sort of like millions and millions of dollars. Um, more difficult to make billions. Uh, but when you have that amount of money, you have an enormous responsibility to sort of give it all away. I think Elon's sort of mindset is that um, humanity is probably uh, <laughs> donezo. Um, the Earth up. is probably done. Like, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm going to go help some aliens. Yeah, he's probably a fatalistic attitude towards everything. And that's the reason for his push towards um, uh, sort of colonizing sure. the rest I mean... of um, the galaxy than sort of other places in the universe to in order to make the Yeah, I mean, who knows what his survive. reasoning is. But even to elaborate on your point there, to make all that money, to be responsible, I understand the argument about not just giving it away because, you know, not to also be entitled to it, but to say you earn that and maybe your decision for how to use this might be a little bit mm-hmm. better than just giving it as if it's like, you know, a handout. And I also, I sit on the I mean, I'm very much a capitalist as much as I am a socialist, but it's like who actually has the, the merit and the understanding of how to use this money and, uh, and again, I don't want to sound like a dictator mm-hmm. also. I mean, I'm all these little random things, but it's like <laughs> what we could do is fund and um, I guess entrepreneurs or like uh, towards like this more of a utopian or like a, a, the future that we kind of want to see that kind of 
where no one's really suffering. So there needs to be like this high level goal that I kind of see the future that I want is not, I mean, I think humans will always have this hierarchy, but at least don't let them suffer so much where they're starving to death and they don't like all the, they only have clean water or access to medical care. I mean, what's happening in the States. I'm not, we're not asking for a lot here, you know, but don't give all the money to bail out corporations from taxpayer money just so that they can do the stock buybacks when you have yeah. people 30,000 or 30 million kids I think after when the the society shut down because of coronavirus that they don't have food to eat because they're relying on school lunch like stuff like that is heartbreaking right wow. and I think anybody if they were to know that kind of stuff would say okay well this is fundamentally wrong like if you actually just sat that in front of Trump even to be like like a kid that can't eat for a whole entire day because they're relying on school lunch you're just going to go bail up this other company so that their their stockholders have a better like i don't know like um bonus check i don't know dividend um those kind of things like really just irk me and i I mean i look at my life and i'm almost halfway through it and i'm like well how how does my little voice or even you being such a supporter with this initiative of like responsible capitalism and all these great things that you're doing with machine learning and, you know, the discussions that we've had, I mean, we're two voices in this big pool. Do we have the capacity and how do we come together um, and get more people like us that understand that to be like, you know what? I believe in that cause. I want to, I want a better future, Uh, not just for me, but like for everyone. Mm. Um, Exactly. It's difficult. It's a heavy task. Um, I would definitely say, yeah, it's a heavy task. Um, it's so hard to sort of get people to stop paying attention mm-hmm. to all the, the media and politics. I know. I feel like, you know, however we're going to evolve this discussions as we go on, hopefully we can, we're going to try to do recording every week. <laughs> um, but I, maybe that, Mm-hmm. It starts off with what you were telling me yesterday. What would you say um, about, you know, knowing the problem is half the solution, right? From the guy you introduced me to. Um, yeah. From Neurohacker, uh, Daniel, what's his last name? He's so long. I can't. <laughs> Smashenberger. Yeah, like just that, those thought leaders like that just are so inspiring to, to even be able to ask those questions and poke holes in their beliefs and their knowledge. Um, I hope that we can kind of be mm-hmm. one of those voices in the space. Because um, mm-hmm. it's definitely about questioning everything, especially when mm-hmm. it's coming from an authority figure. Um, I think I learned pretty early that even university professors can be wrong. Um, even um, researchers working on a journal article can definitely be wrong if they were funded by somebody. And um, even among the pool of researchers that get a paper published, um, there's typically sort of um, arguments um, between them as to the final conclusion of the paper. Um, Two of the researchers of the five may have one um, sort of argument that they feel should be the real conclusion to a paper while the other three um, sort of have their own opinion that eventually gets published um and as we know the consensus is Mm -hmm. not always a good thing by any means it's almost like you you want to see that one hand that raises up against the against the grain right and and you almost yeah no i agree with that totally um because really what are we as humans we're so faulty that it's just an opinion really as opposed to like fact because life is sort of made of all these paradoxes and um mm-hmm. you know it, it's sort of like we always get that source from somewhere and it filters through our existing knowledge right now but mm-hmm. i mean even looking at ourselves and going back five years i'm like oh man i was so dumb then and but if you go back five years i'd be like man i was so smart then you know i'm so smart yeah. right now but really when I kind of look back at every single stage of my life, I look at it right now, what happens in five years from now? And I, I'm like, oh, I was missing this piece. And it actually just changes your percep- perception of the world. And yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm 
I'm so glad I'm not the same person I was five years ago. And hopefully if I'm alive in five years time from now, I'm I'm definitely hoping that I'm not going to be the same person. I'm hoping that I've kind of continued to grown and adapted. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to think about sort of the life forms that we have on this earth um, when there are so many possibilities of life, even in our own solar system. Um, There was that recent paper on the discovery of phosphine, in the atmosphere of Venus, um, measuring like quantities so excessive that as far as we know, only the presence of microbial organisms can account for the chemistry that might introduce Mm. this gas into such an environment. So there could be life within our own solar system. Mm -hmm. We have no idea. No, but I think it's probably a way to kind of maybe conclude our first episode here is about really our podcast is really about life Mm -hmm. and the whole holistic totalitarian, like, view of it because you know the meaning of life really maybe it's about progress and learning and sharing and these relationships that we build and this knowledge that we pass on from one another um and which makes humans kind of different from ai right it's it's the fact of like ai can talk to each other and kind of have these mass copies and they can all know one thing but as humans the only way we really can communicate is if we were to share right if you and i didn't have this conversation i wouldn't know Mm -hmm what was in you and you know you can break things in me to be like oh okay well here's a new way of looking at it or you know because because i mean we're not here to disagree yeah <laughs> and exactly <laughs> if that was the case there would be no point totally to even right i mean I, I mean we haven't disagreed about many things um but maybe it's because you and i are are kind of open to mm-hmm. new ideas and, and just the sharing of thought and that's appreciated by the way by me <laughs> um but but definitely i'm i'm yeah. in that place where it's like it, it's nice to learn off other people because you walked a different life and so have i and and yeah i think being able to share that with our listeners and yeah um, precisely yeah I'm, i, think that's I know an awesome I'm place excited, to end like, our first yeah, episode like, for the great conversation and um, I'm excited. So we don't know what our uh, podcast title is yet. Um, but definitely maybe next episode we can go into a little bit more game theory type stuff and talk about um, yeah, we'll figure it out. Right? <laughs> Improv. Yeah, we'll play it by ear. Yeah, okay, well, we'll have a good day. And... Okay, talk soon. You too.